Here's Pastor Ed Taylor. 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Socrates drank the poison hemlock and laid down to die. Those that were with him, his friends asked him, Shall we live again, Socrates? And the dying philosopher could only reply, I hope so, but no man can know. Well, let me tell you, Socrates knows the answer to that question now. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, verse 25, he, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is amazing grace. It's time once again for Abounding Grace. Glad you could make it. In a moment, we'll join Pastor Ed Taylor in John chapter 1, and the focus today is on the deity of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God. Pastor Ed will pose four questions related to this truth, and by the end of our time together, you'll be able to answer each one of them. So let's dive right in. In John chapter 1, we have been uh, learning about Jesus. John takes us all the way back to before the beginning and declares to us in verse 1 that Jesus is the Word. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This is John 1.1. 1, 1. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Now, the sum of our last few weeks of study uh, has been these verses. We've looked at them in depth. Uh, one of the uniqueness, while many, many churches name the name of Jesus Christ and use the Bible uh, to encourage and to uplift their people, one of the uniquenesses about Calvary is that we, when we use the Bible, we teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We just started the Gospel of John, and we studied it verse by verse up through the first five verses, and now we're pausing because John introduces us to Jesus and the, introduces the topic of the deity of Jesus Christ. That would be the theological phrase, the deity of Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar with that word, you're like, what is that? It's a, it's a, a very fancy way of saying Jesus is God. And when you think of deity, you think of God, and the deity of Jesus is introduced where he says that Jesus is the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos, it says in verse 1, was God. Today I'd like to pull back and introduce you to this Jesus from the entirety of the Scriptures. It's important to know who Jesus is, Because he alone is who we follow. He is our savior. He's our leader. He's our pastor. And we are warned time and time again to be careful of people that might come to us with a false gospel and a fake Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul is so strong. Paul the apostle is so strong in that warning. He says that even if an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel or preaches another Jesus, you go, wait a minute, another Jesus? Well, the only way for you to figure out what other people are inventing as it relates to Jesus is to know the real thing. And the real thing, the real person of, the G- of Jesus, of Messiah, of the Savior, is given to us in the Scriptures. Who is Jesus? The question was asked then, and it's asked today, who is he? I read about a little boy that was frightened 
in the middle of the night by a thunderous lightning storm. And he calls out, Daddy, Daddy, come here, I'm scared. And his dad says, God loves you, son. He'll take good care of you. And the boy replied, I know God loves me, Dad, but right now I want somebody who has skin on. (laughs) Jesus, for all practical purposes, was God with skin on. God in human flesh. Or like you're in chapter 1 there, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's another doctrine altogether. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. We'll get to that soon enough in our Bible study in John. But today, we want to focus on the deity of Jesus Christ. In order to do that, I'm going to give you four questions to ask. I'm going to ask them right now, but by the time we end our study, you should be able to answer them. And here they are if you'd like to jot them down. Question number one is, was Jesus ever called God? Question number two, does Jesus possess the attributes of God? Does he have what it takes to be God? Number three, is Jesus unique? And if he is, how? And then fourthly, how does Jesus demonstrate that he is God? We're going to use those four questions. We're going to use them. And as I ask them, you're going to be able to answer them by the time that we end today. Number one, was Jesus ever called God? Let me give you the answer. Yes. Jesus himself personally claimed to be God in John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Those of you that are Bible students, you go right back to Exodus chapter 3. When Moses was sent to Pharaoh, he says, and sent to, to, to bring the people and, and be the leader of the children of Israel, he asked God, who should I say sent me? What did God say? I am. Jesus is claiming that to himself. Jesus personally claimed to be God. You know, God the Father declared Jesus to be God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Apostle John calls him God. We've learned that already in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. Paul called him God. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you, my friend, are complete in him, who's the head of all principality and power. The apostle Thomas calls him God. Now remember Thomas? He, he was given a nickname that I don't think is fair. We know him as Doubting Thomas. Have you ever had a nickname you wish somebody wouldn't have given you? I mean, I, I think it's a bad rap for him. I don't think Thomas was as much doubting as he was just one of those guys that like more information, just like some of you are. You know, I wouldn't call you doubting. You just like to investigate. You like evidence. I commend you for that. And I think Thomas was that kind of guy. He, he wanted more evidence. And as he asked for more evidence, what did Jesus do? He gave it to him. And after receiving the evidence, Thomas says in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Not only that, but Jesus was worshipped as God. Luke chapter 24, verse 51. Excuse me, verse 52 says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth, those under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question is, was Jesus ever called God? Yes, yes, yes. Question number two. Does Jesus possess the attributes of God? And what that means, well, I haven't shared it yet, but you guys read ahead, you know. What that means is, is that Jesus possesses attributes that make him God that you and I don't have and could never have. Only God has them. 
And as we go through a a systematic study of the doctrine of the Trinity, we do that with each person. God the Father has the attributes of God. Jesus has the attributes of God. The Holy Spirit has the attributes of God. And therefore, we conclude they're God in unity, a triunity. Very powerful, mysterious, wonderful doctrine. But let's, let's stick with Jesus. First of all, Jesus is eternal. In Hebrews, it says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternal. He's in other places called the eternal son. Next we learn, and John has already told us in, first, in John chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus is the creator. You're not the creator. I'm not the creator. God is the creator. And it says here in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. We also cross-reference that last time with Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, where it says the same thing. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Thrones or dominions, principalities, and powers. Not only that, but Jesus is omnipotent. Why? Because he's God. That means all-powerful, omnipotent. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. God is omnipresent. Jesus is omnipresent. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. For where two or three gather together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. God is omniscient. Jesus is omniscient, which means all-knowing. So here we have all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. John chapter 16, verse 30. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. And by this we believe that you came forth from God. God is unchangeable. Jesus is unchangeable. We've already looked at it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Unchangeable. God is holy and perfect. Jesus is holy and perfect. Acts chapter 3, verse 14. But you denied the holy one and the just and asked for a murderer. He's the holy one and the just. God is merciful and kind. Jesus is merciful and kind. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. God is faithful. Guess what? Jesus is faithful. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. God is truth. Guess what? Jesus is truth. John 14, verse 6. Jesus declares of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. No deceit. God is sinless. Jesus is sinless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if the study stopped right now, wouldn't you agree it's more than enough? That this beautiful, wonderful unfolding of who Jesus is, his attributes, his characteristics, the love that he has for us, that he would willingly come and sacrifice his life. How and why? Because of love. He would sacrifice his life on behalf of you, that he, the sinless one, would be made sin so that you and I can have the glorious exchange of our sin for his sinlessness. That today, if you will bow your knee, you know, the Bible says that there's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, here's the difference. Today, you can bow your knee willingly and openly and with great joy and excitement. But if you refuse to bow the knee in this life, 
When you transition from this life, you, you leave this earthly body. When you die and you face God the judge, you'll bow the knee in such a way it will not bring great joy. It'll bring great regret. You'll look back on your life and think, man, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I, what didn't I do with that pastor told me? Why didn't I do what my grandmother told me? Why didn't I bow the knee when I had the chance? Listen, friends, you have the chance today to bow the knee and accept Jesus as your Savior by turning away from your sin. He has made sin. I mean, to think of the love. When you get to know Jesus, you get to see the depth of his love. He's no made-up figure that men made up to create a religion. Jesus is God. And I invite you into a relationship with him today. Was Jesus ever called God? Yes. Did Jesus possess the attributes of God? Yes. Number three, is Jesus unique? Don't answer it. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. Is Jesus unique? Well, what makes Jesus so unique? You know that verse, John chapter 3, verse 16? You see it in football games, and, and it's the first probably even unbelievers memorize this verse. They'll even have it in their house. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the gospel, the good news message in a short form. And we emphasize the back end of that, which I just shared with you, that, man, man, God is so passionately pursuing you that if you'll just bow the knee, God will receive you, you'll be saved. And we often skip over a very important phrase. We just kind of take it for granted that God gave his only begotten son. That's an important phrase. It's actually, if you're still in John chapter 1, in verse 14, he uses the same phrase earlier. He says that, that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. Now that phrase is a phrase that reflects uniqueness. God is declaring right now that Jesus is unique, very special, one of a kind. There's no one like him. There's no other, no other name under heaven, Peter said, by which a man could be saved but the name of Christ Jesus. He's unique, special. And let me tell you how. First of all, Jesus is unique in his virgin birth. Now, when you were growing up in high school, did you ever meet anyone that was born of a virgin? I haven't. I've been around this world for quite a while and never met one. You know why? Because there never will be one and there never was one except Jesus. And it was prophesied hundreds of years before it ever occurred, Isaiah chapter 7. That, that's what's so powerful. This is another Bible study we could do, and we have the power of prophecy. God, being God, knowing the future, is so confident of what he knows that he will write it down ahead of time so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe that God is God. No other religion is able to do that. No false god is able to do that. And the Bible even, God even says of himself, if anyone predicts something and says they're speaking for God, if they predict something and it doesn't come to pass, stone them because they're false prophets. I mean, God's just like, man, straight up. Isaiah chapter 7, it's the verse that we often use around Christmas time, isn't it? In verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. God lays it out. This is how Messiah is coming, of a virgin. This is how it's going to happen. It's going to be miraculous. God lays out the birth of Jesus and says, It is unable to be, ha to be duplicated by human beings. It requires my intervention. Jesus will be born of a virgin. Amazing, the prophecies of God. Another prophecy I think about how powerful God is, is that long before crucifixion, the Bible said that Messiah would be crucified and described it in vivid detail. The, the crazy thing about that biblically is that when God described the crucifixion, it wasn't even invented yet. It wasn't even on the scene for people to use as a reference. They just wrote down what they were told. Amazing. Amazing. It's just encouraging. So how, does it, how was Isaiah 7 fulfilled? Well, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born of a woman. 
In Matthew 22, it says that Jesus was born of the seed of David. So he came from a woman, he came from the right lineage, and then lastly, in Luke chapter 1, it says that he was conceived by the overshadowing of the highest. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you, Mary was told. Therefore, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God, and his birth was from a virgin. He's unique in his birth, but you also know he's unique in his life. He's unique in his life because Jesus is the only one to ever have walked the planet that has a human nature, 100% human and 100% God. When he emptied himself, the Bible speaks of him coming from glory. He existed before the womb of Mary because he's eternal. The Bible speaks of him leaving in Philippians and relinquishing some of the glory that he shared in heaven. He didn't lose his godness. He submitted himself to the humanity, and now he is merged with 100% human and 100% God. Again, that's the doctrine of the incarnation. We will get to that when we get to verse 14 in our verse-by-verse study in John. And that, where people are reading through the Gospels, this kind of stumbles them a little bit because we read at times of his humanity. For instance, in John chapter 19, we read of Jesus being thirsty. In Matthew chapter 4, we read of Jesus being hungry. In John chapter 12, we read of Jesus being troubled. In Matthew 8, he's tired. In John 4, he's weary. In Matthew 21, we read of him being angry, but without sin. In John chapter 11, we see Jesus weeping. And there's a uniqueness in his life, not only in his birth. But thirdly, Jesus is unique in his his death. His death was also prophesied and predicted. Not only was it prophesied and predicted um, that he would die, but it was also prophesied and predicted that he would be crucified. And all the details leading up to exactly how he fulfilled those through his death. But not only that, he was unique in his death because Jesus alone died as a substitution. According to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So he's unique as he died for a substitution. Not only that, but Jesus was, was unique in that he was made to be sin, even though he was perfectly sinless. He was made to be sin. We read it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that he was unique in his death because he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the, of the world. Now, that's a significant picture because in the Old Testament relationship of man with God, there was a sacrificial system that was required through the priesthood. And you would bring a lamb, and that lamb would be sacrificed, and the blood of that lamb would be sprinkled. And through that, it was symbolic of God, that blood, recognizing that blood, and covering sin. Until when? Until the next time you brought a sacrifice. That was the pattern. You were always continually bringing sacrifices because God would be covering your sin, and that was his agreement with God. That was his, what we would call, a covenant. That was his covenant. But with Jesus, Jesus ushered in a new covenant of grace. And the new covenant of grace, now, we aren't, you didn't bring a lamb here. I'm glad you didn't bring a lamb here today. Everybody walking in, where's, you know, there's a whole thing of lambs just tied to the pole out there. We're not going to do anything with them. We're we're not going to sacrifice them. We're not going to do anything with those lambs that you bring. Why? Because John the Baptist would say, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God that doesn't cover sin. You know what he does? Takes it away. As far as the east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. Oh, yeah, he's unique in his birth. He's unique in his life. 
He's unique in his death. And finally, Jesus is unique in his resurrection. You see, they buried Jesus in a tomb, but three days later, he rose again. And Jesus is alive today, calling you into a relationship with himself. He's unique. 400 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Socrates drank the poison hemlock and laid down to die. Those that were with him, his friends asked him, Shall we live again, Socrates? And the dying philosopher could only reply, I hope so, but no man can know. Well, let me tell you, Socrates knows the answer to that question now. Jesus himself said in John chapter 11, verse 25, he, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, three of the four questions have been asked and answered. We'll share the final one tomorrow on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Pastor Ed, as you know, many cults deny the deity of Jesus. Some have even misinterpreted this passage in John and claim Jesus is a God. Well, the next time someone comes knocking on our front door with a lie, what have you found is the best way to handle that? Well, I learned a new technique. I used to, I have to say, Larry, I used to take the technique of taking these folks on head on. Ah, you, you believe in a lie. That's not even a real Bible. And I think you could tell, I mean, I think you could conclude that didn't work very well. And I picked up a book by a brother named Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, Ron Rhodes. And his first book he wrote in this series, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah Witnesses. And it has a twofold purpose, the book does. One was to give you the information you need to know between the truth and the error of the Watchtower Society, which is what we would all, comparing what they believe about Jesus, which is not biblical, compared to what the Bible teaches. And then I would, you know, I would take that information and just give it to them. But he taught me, secondly, in, that, in his book, he gives you tools on how to communicate, and that's to ask open-ended questions. Because when you ask an open-ended question, places in a person an unresolved conflict because you're asking a question for example if you with the deity of Christ you'd say if Jesus isn't god then what was the purpose of him declaring himself to be the great i am on more than one occasion in the gospel of john you hear that question? I don't know if that was a Ron Rhodes question or not, but do you hear that question? The question will tend send them back to their King James Bible, and they'll be maybe looking for the I am statements of Christ. And as they're exposed to the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is there to bring conviction. Now, I'm sure they'll go ask the people in the Watchtower, and I'm sure they'll look it up in their little resources. But when you ask an open-ended question, it forces action on their part. You're not trying to win an argument at your door. You're trying to lead someone to submit themselves and be open to a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. Open-ended questions, and there are... There are books by Ron Rhodes, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah Witnesses, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Mormons, with Roman Catholics. These are must additions to your spiritual library uh, because it'll help you understand the truth, compare it to the error, and then communicate in such a way that will draw a person to be open to the Holy Spirit and open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit while they search for the answers. Great question. 
That is very helpful. Thanks, Pastor Ed. And friend, you can hear this teaching again at AboundingGraceRadio.com. It's called The Deity of Jesus. And we also have a book we'd like to get into your hands that can help you overcome discouragement and even depression. It's Struggling Under the Broom Tree by Pastor Bill Gem. It seems like a day doesn't go by that we don't hear of someone who is really down and discouraged. The past couple of years have really been rough. Did you realize that the prophet Elijah also struggled with fear, doubt, and depression? And you'll read about it in this book, but also how God would lift him out from under the broom tree of despair. Pastor Bill reveals God's rescue plan for discouragement in Struggling Under the Broom Tree. Request a copy when you give a gift of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. We're here to serve you at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. Or just go online to calvaryco.store. And thank you for helping us get the word out on stations like this one. As you partner with us, it's thrilling to see how God uses it in great ways to bless and encourage so many lives through the radio. Another convenient way to make a donation is online at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Celebrating over 20 years of God's faithfulness, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora. 